What's the difference between a spiritual finder and a spiritual seeker? How many of you are spiritual finders? Yes? You're a finder. <laughs> All right. How many of you are seekers? Some are neither. <laughs> How many are pretend seekers? How many are just out there saying, I don't care, I'm just here for the food? Or... <laughs> That's why I'm here, but... Okay. I'll have to give you the difference then. Thank you, sir. The spiritual seeker does not have a big enough ego. That's the only problem. The spiritual seeker is content to have a human-sized ego, whereas the spiritual finder has a cosmic ego. However, there is another difference, which is in the type of egocentricity. The normal human narcissist has an imaginary ego. They are trapped in their self-image. That's why they don't reach the self. They prefer the self-image to the self. And the self is the center, so they never get all the way to the center. So therefore, they are not really egocentric. You remember the story of Narcissus, right? He saw his image in the pool and dived into it and died, right? He was interested in his image. He wasn't interested in who's looking at the image. No, he wanted to know about the image and, and fall in love with the image. And that's what the narcissist does, although they will often fall in love with the image that somebody else has of them, if it's nice enough. And they'll fall into the pool of those eyes and uh, try to die into it. But of course, they're usually kicked out right away and doesn't last. But this is uh, the, uh, the narcissist's egocentricity is a failed uh, attempt to reach the center. There's a, there's a reason why. The human narcissistic ego is obsessed with wanting to be somebody. Whereas the cosmic egoist 
wants to be a the one, not someone, the one, much bigger, but not a body, because the one ain't got no body. Now, the narcissist makes a mistake in judgment. <clears throat> okay. He doesn't realize that there's no such thing as nothing. I think in an earlier teaching I said there's no such thing as a thing, but it's also true that there's no such thing as nothing. Because there's always something, there's always space, right? Time, energy, there's the observer, if nothing else, there's always something. So you can't reach nothing, but that's nothing with a small n. And then if you finish the sentence, you would have to say, There's no such thing as nothing because there is nothing. The nothing. And what the narcissistic ego doesn't realize is the difference between the small end nothing and the big end nothing. Because the big end nothing is another name for God or the self or the one. because it's no thing, because a thing is relative, limited. But it is that nothing, with a capital N, that pervades and perceives and dreams the everything. The everything comes out of the nothing. So which would you rather be, the source or the effect? The dream or the dreamer? <clears throat> Here's the difference in a more practical metaphor. I think I'm going to erase some of this. Your life is like being in a car on a journey. The ego equals the tires. Because <laughs> the ego is where the rubber meets the road. Now, the narcissistic ego wants to be proud about how good its tires are. My tires can handle the worst roads in the world. You know, I can deal with rocks, mud. 
I can deal with uh, steep mountainsides. My tires can go anywhere. Off-road, on-road, doesn't matter. I can do anything. And he's so proud of being in the tire that he doesn't realize that he's really getting bumped around and has absolutely no control about what road he is on. He, yes, he, he's happy about the quality of the tire he has created in his own fantasy, but he has no control of where the journey is taking him. Because he's, he's a sub, subject to karma, subject to the three malas, and, and therefore he has no free will. He thinks he does because look how well I handle it, right? Uh, and, and after the fact, he says, uh, oh yeah, I wanted to go on that horrible road, you know, up and slide into the mud like that taxi got stuck in there. And, you know, I wanted it all along. All right, but it, it, it really doesn't have any control over its destiny. Now we could say the rest of the chassis, uh, the, the different systems, oil and water and, and all the various other gadgets and computerized kinds of uh, things that make the car go uh, are, are different levels of the seven bodies. And, and nowadays the cars I think all have GPS units. We could say the GPS with its mapping system Or that woman who always tells you, turn left at the next corner and uh, gives you instructions about the best route. I'm always listening to her when I'm riding in the car these days. She's very nice, really, but the GPS is the soul, all right? But the GPS doesn't determine your route either. Even though it might know the best route, it doesn't determine it. It's got the information, yes, but it, it can't make the decision. It's the Atman who's driving the car. Now, who in their right mind would prefer to be a tire to being the driver? Is there anybody? Some people would say, yeah, tires have more fun. You know, oh, the driver is sitting there, it's got too many shock absorbers, it's too easy, you know. And, uh, you know, they don't even have to pay attention, they can listen to the radio, they can have all of these sublime kinds of feelings, the tire's doing the work, you know. So, yeah, the world needs egos. Um, <clears throat> but. <laughs> That's great uh, for the rulers, uh, the ruling elite who, uh, who, who loves to have uh, lots of tires for its war machines. Uh, but uh, wouldn't you rather be the driver of your own destiny rather than be driven by drives that control the ego? That's the basic question that will determine your destiny. Where do you want to be on this cosmic car, on this journey through the cycle of time? 
and do you want to have control? Or let's use another metaphor. <clears throat> we have a, a world full of warring minds, right? It, it, it's all, everybody's at war with everybody else. We know that. There may be temporary alliances here and there, but they're broken quickly as soon as it's uh, uh, in, in somebody's favor. Uh, to, uh, to betray uh, their, their last alliance and create another one. And so you're always seeing this uh, constant shift of uh, power blocks, right? And yet we know that the entire panorama of the, the matrix is actually controlled by a single mind. The warring minds are the tires in this single machine, very complex machine. But the puppeteer who controls all of these separate individual ego minds is the Paramatman in the control room that is operating the matrix. Now, if you knew for sure that there was one mind operating all of the other minds, wouldn't you want to be in the control room and be that mind? Or do you want to be one of the little warring minds that are actually puppets of this higher intelligence? What level do you want to play the game at? It's a video game. But do you want to be the screen character who is moved around by the actual player? Or do you want to be the player? Screen character has a consciousness and believes he's actually making moves and shooting people and whatever they do in video games. But uh, he's being controlled by a power that is not on the screen. It's not there. It's, it's nothing. It's invisible. But that nothing has all the power, doesn't it? So, the question is really, how power-hungry are you? And the narcissist is not power-hungry enough. He'd rather be weak. Okay, why? I figured it out. That's <laughs> <laughs> all I'm good for, really. Okay, here we go.
Okay, I took the trouble to write it on the board because I want you to remember it, because this is the primary error. The narcissistic human ego believes that liberation from the matrix means that he's being locked out from the matrix and from his enjoyment, his jouissance. Remember that scene in the Matrix film, right, where the Cypher, the guy who uh, betrays the, the team that, that's working for Zion, he goes back because of the taste of meat, right? Well, it's, it's no better if you go back for the taste of fruit, you know, I mean, or, or whatever you're going back for. Uh, wh whatever it is that, that keeps you in the Matrix rather than the operator of the Matrix, is keeping you powerless. But you don't realize at the ego level that you are locking yourself out from a much more blissful and empowering experience than what you can have as a human level ego. Human level egos are really very low on the totem pole and, and they have uh, such a low pay grade that they are given very little uh, power to change destiny. You know, because they don't have the intelligence. So, choosing to transcend the human level ego is choosing an increased level of intelligence at the cost of losing some jouissance. Now, Weigh the two. Are you really going to go for the enjoyment of that horrible carnivorous food the guy was eating, or, or even frugivorous food, over uh, the, the bliss of the supreme intelligence and power and light and eternal presence that you get by just letting go of that attachment? Have, are you thinking clearly? <laughs> to me, this is a very simple, easy decision. You don't have to wait years to, well, maybe. Let me, let me wait a little longer. Uh, enjoy being an ego. Maybe on my deathbed, you know, I'll, I'll go for it. Why, what's the point of waiting? Is there any benefit? Well, I mean, there must be. <laughs> What's that? Learning how to wait. Learning how to wait. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for some justification for that. Uh, why do you want to learn how to wait when you can be in the eternal now in which there's nothing more to wait for? Right? Because you're waiting for Godot, right? You're waiting for something that will never come. And, and therefore, you are just uh, putting off the bliss that you want to want, but don't want. Because the, the attraction to the jouissance, and at the ego level, it's sense of security. Right? That's what it's going to have to give up. It's not just enjoyment. It's the enjoyment of, of the illusion of security. Right? Chakra one. I was asked yesterday about, uh, about the, the different chakras. Is it really a mountain and you go from one, two to three, or are they a, uh, a knot? Yes, they are a knot, but 
they work themselves out sequentially in life. So almost every uh, sexual relationship begins as an infatuation at chakra one, where the person, each one is projecting that the other is the equivalent of mother or, or father or savior or knight uh, in armor or whatever, and, uh, and, and is going to give you chakra one security. Yeah, and because of that uh, false projection, uh, then you go into chakra two and, uh, and, and get the jouissance uh, that is supposedly going to lead to this ultimate outcome of sublime happiness. But no, instead it leads to chakra three, in which uh, soon the two parties are in a power struggle and, uh, and fighting over who's gonna run whose life. So the, uh, the, the way that the chakras develop in life are in accord with that, in the same way that Buddha saw, you know, oh yes, pretty woman, satisfaction temporarily, and then remorse. And, and that's uh, in the chakra three, need to then dominate and get away and, and, and uh, uh, clear the slate. So unless you get beyond that knot, you're just going to go round and round again and find yourself as uh, in the in the traditional form the victim of somebody's desire then the of course the persecutor uh, projected upon and then you'll be the rescuer and you go round and round and it's the same knot that that shows up in many different permutations but there's no way out of it because you're dealing with images you're not dealing with the real self in any of these relationships that are happening within the matrix. There are images that are being projected upon other images. And those images are having a relationship, but they're not real. There's no depth. There's, and there's lack of being, lack of essence in an image. And because every ego today has got so many different uh, fantasies that need to be played out. You may be playing out a chakra two fantasy one day and a chakra three the next, and, and usually you're gonna uh, have to have a routine in which you go from one to the other, and that's why you see many couples, they're fighting one day and then they make up and they're passionate the next day, and then they're in a cold war again, and then they're going through something else, and then they're each going in other directions, and then they'll come back and try to make up again, right? But there's no actual relationship. It's just a push-pull and an orbiting around and an attacking and a, a fleeing and a hating and, uh, and a needing but there's no actual relationship of, of a true self with another real true self, right? So what, once you've gone around that uh, block a number of times and fallen into the same hole over and over again, at, at a certain point, you would think, well, I wanna find something better than uh, being a tire on the road that I'm going on in a circle. So, at a certain point in life, I think people do make the decision that they want to, to go for it and, and get liberated from the matrix, but they get terror then of the big nothing. They get terror that, well, there won't be an ego controlling anything. I'm just letting go of every defense I have, every power, every ability to think. 
hold on here. This is an error in judgment. People have these false beliefs about what a liberated being is. So, in the same way that we had to distinguish nothing with a small n from nothing with the big N, we have to distinguish mind with a big M from mind with a small m. Okay? Now, is infinite consciousness that is not obscured. It is without thought. Thought, again, with a small t. It's true that big mind doesn't have thoughts of, an, of a human ego level. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't think. They're not human level thoughts, but there are God conscious level thoughts. And so the little mind thinks, oh, I can't give up thinking because thinking is what gives me a sense of control. But the real control comes from being at the level in which you are the dreamer of the dream, whose thoughts actually are the events that happen in the dream. That's the basis of the magic I was talking about yesterday. Because all of this is thought. That's all we are as appearances, images in this world are thoughts in the big mind. But who's running the big mind, you see? Whose mind is it? It's not the mind of any image here. But that one mind is being projected into every image, which is what enables the image to feel alive and to have any consciousness whatsoever. But the image at the human ego level only has like 1% of the intelligence and the power that the big mind has that's coordinating everything. I mean, everybody sees, don't you, that things happen in sync. Even though there's a war and conflicts and everybody is trying to fool everybody else, somehow everything happens in some magically perfect way that nobody, no fiction writer could have planned out right? It's all too perfect. 
Well, if you understand that perfection, you understand that there's a great intelligence that is moving this comedy of errors. And that one is not making an error. Everyone else is making an error, but that one is just enjoying a comedy. So which would you rather be? The one who's laughing at the errors or the one making the errors? Okay. If I can't convince you, then, you know, it's okay. But it's available to, uh, to any uh, consciousness that thinks its way out of the paper bag. That the ego is. It, it, it's not really stopping anyone from liberation. It's only your, your false ideas about what is best for you that is actually not in your own true self-interest. And once you know what yourself really is, you will have very different interests than the, one, the ones that the ego has. Because the ego's interests are very petty and, and basically stupid because they, they have no relationship to the real. They are, they are all, its interest is in its fantasies and its projections and in its power, prestige, uh, its sense of uh, making something of itself, you know, and uh, gaining security, power, enjoyment, all of that that we talked about. But all of those are fleeting and they end up as, uh, as forms of suffering. So once you know that, and you know that the only way out of suffering is to enter big mind and leave small mind behind, then why would you stay in small mind? Okay, here's another aspect that I think that people don't understand. Small mind is not even your own mind. You borrowed it. You stole it. Okay, let's, everybody has had the experience of, uh, of hearing, uh, let's say, a pop song on the radio, and then somehow, later on, your mind is singing that song to you, isn't it? It's repeating the same song over and over again. Well, are you playing the song in your mind, or is the song playing itself? You see, didn't the song take over your mind? You didn't make the decision, but you can't get it out of your mind. How is it that an external piece of music has power to embed itself in your mind and you can't get it out? <laughs> Obviously, the ego mind is controlled from outside, not from inside because the ego mind is based on the desire of the other. Okay? But why is it then that some songs you will not repeat in your mind and others you will? You didn't make the decision, but you'll find yourself singing certain songs and not others that you may have heard, you know, in, at the same or in, in recent moments but your, the, the ego mind will pick up certain songs and repeat them over and over again, not others. Why? Because that particular song that it's repeating over and over again 
is satisfying some desire for power, okay, that the other songs that it rejected didn't. It's making you feel more powerful. It's making you feel more entitled to jouissance. It's making you feel that some really great jouissance is about to come your way. Those are the songs that tend to get repeated in the mind. Try to focus on the ones that <laughs> you probably have some going on right now. But those are the songs. They make you happy. They make the ego mind happy, you see? Now, the ego mind can easily be made happy with a sonic image. That's all it is. It's another image. Music is an image, a pattern. Now, if you get into serious music, a serious music will give you a, a stereophonic view of the matrix because it gives you the same pattern in sonic form that the eyes give you in visual form and that the capacity to cognize will give you in symbolic form. And so it enables you then to understand reality from more dimensions simultaneously and to be able to have a sense of what is happening that is touching your heart because music is affecting you emotionally at, at a level different from what uh, somebody in front of you is, is making you feel or is causing you to believe or is trying to, to uh, persuade you of. So there is, there is a distinction, and that gives you a kind of depth perception of the world. So music and art and, and the various cultural artifacts have that structure to be able to get the perceiver of the pattern to unweave itself from the pattern, to be able to distinguish itself from the pattern that it sees, rather than identify with the pattern. Okay, that's, that's what serious art will do. Whereas popular art, commercial art, all of uh, lower forms of art want you to identify because then if you hear a jingle that wants to sell you something, you'll go and you'll buy the thing. At least that's, that's the basis of advertising, right? They want to get you to repeat their little song and, uh, and, and then go to the supermarket and buy their little widget or frozen pizza or whatever it is they're selling you that day. But the, uh, the, the pop song is is connecting with that vortex, that knot of egoic fantasies, and is empowering those fantasies so that it wants more of it, so that it will dare to do the bad karma that it has been resisting. Okay, that's the purpose of music, to make you less inhibited. It strengthens the one who is uh, either being romantically ravished or, or offered the promise of something on that level or the promise of some military music or, you know, even Beethoven's very militaristic victory over the enemy. There's some sense of empowerment. Listen to the Ninth Symphony, why they always play it at all of these uh, state occasions. It's, it has that empowering heroism, right? 
And, and all, a lot of the, the classical music is about that kind of a, of a, of a victory on the phenomenal plane. And so it gives that warrior spirit that's almost dead now, a few little sparks of life again, right? But the, the music that can take you into the real knot within the heart and help you to unravel it, that's the genius of music, or, the, or art can do that. You could see that in some of Van Gogh's paintings, that the, the knot within your own ego was portrayed but it was transparent to uh, a nothing that was somehow in the canvas, even though it wasn't painted. It was just a pair of boots, but somehow that pair of boots is Brahman. It's not just a pair of boots that you're seeing. And, and so you can see the noumenal through the phenomenal. And that's what art is meant to do, to get you to see through the small mind that only sees the image to the real that underlies it. And, and enables you to choose the real over the image. That's, that's what great art or, or great uh, uh, literature or teachings are attempting to do, to help you break through from small mind to big mind, and to recognize that there's nothing to lose with that breakthrough and everything to gain. Okay, I probably ranted enough, let's see. Yeah, it's getting toward the end of my time. So I want to open the floor and ask if any of this made sense to anyone. And did it help you make a different choice? So it's only from that big mind that a work of art can be produced that leads the viewer or the listener to that big mind. Yeah, because big mind is where genius is located, right? Not in small mind. And all the great artists of every kind will say they downloaded it from big mind. It was an inspiration. They received it. They may not themselves be in big mind, but they're enough in contact with it, and that's why they became artists, to keep that contact going so that they could then be transmitters of some uh, glimpses of the big mind that they're allowed to get in their own artistic uh, suffering, right? Because the artist suffers for his art, right? And, and that suffering is actually going through the resistance of letting go of small mind enough to receive these blissful visions of beauty and, and of truth that then can come through. It seems like both are happening at the same time. There's the, there's the calling of the big mind and at the same time all the programming yeah, that's true for most artists, not for all, uh, but it's not true for sages or, or, or completely realized beings. So why settle for just being an artist, right? A lot of the great art and poetry is about that very question. One of the most famous poems by Yeats is, should I choose perfection of the art or of the life? And I cannot have both, you see. And, and his agony, William Butler Yeats, which is, is uh, he's one of the great poets of the last century, was about the, the, the fact that he felt he had to choose art because he, he didn't have it in him to let go of that desire to transmit but not be the source, 
right? He felt if he was the source, he wouldn't bother transmitting it because he'd be in bliss and what's the need to, to write a poem, right? But it's not necessarily the case, obviously. Ramakrishna had the same problem for many years. I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of you know his biography and he's famous for saying, well, I don't want to be the sugar, I want to taste the sugar. And so he remained in duality as a worshiper of the goddess. He worshiped Kali. And, uh, and he, he got the, uh, the Shakti from Kali and the bliss and the nectar, all of that. But he remained as a worshiper who preferred that Mahabhava to the actual realization of God consciousness for many years. And then finally he realized he was being an idiot and he went for it. And otherwise, there wouldn't be books of Ramakrishna's teachings. It was after he went for it that, you know, then that's when the real genius teachings began to come through. So otherwise, he was just a, a typical psychotic wandering around Bombay. And, you know, he was a transvestite and he, he was transgender. He, he didn't know what he was. And one day he'd, he'd be a Muslim, the next day he'd be a Christian, the next day he'd, he'd be in some other religion. He, he, had no, he had no identity, which was in his favor in a way. That's why he was able to finally reach the point where he could stop having the last identity, which was a worshiper of the one without identity. Well, why be stuck worshiping what you actually are, you know? So uh, it's making that shift that frees you from the last uh, bits of karmic enchainment.